Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. So Frank, can you think about the first brand in your life going way back that resonated with you, that you remember? Yeah, for me, the first brand was the uh, Converse All-Star, Chuck Taylor. Mm-hmm. And um, I, loved, I loved that, that shoe. Uh, it was cool. It was, it was rebellious. Um, it was countercultural. Um, and um, I, I, I think I wore it until the soles came off, you know. Um, but that brand meant a, meant a lot to me when I was younger. Dr. J wore Converse, <laughs> so that's part of it, too. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today on the CMO Podcast, my guest is Frank Cooper, who's the CMO of BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world. But what I think is really special about today's podcast is Frank has, I think, the most amazing, unique career path of any CMO in history. He went to Berkeley undergraduate. He went to Harvard Law. Then he went to AOL, Def Jam, Pepsi, BuzzFeed, now BlackRock. And this podcast is just full of pearls of wisdom, insights about life, insights about relationships, and what I especially loved, insights about leading with purpose. And now, here's my conversation with Frank. So Frank, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So we have something in common. I don't know if you know this, but we both, in our careers, work for AOL. Okay. You probably stayed there a little bit longer than I did, though, because I got to pass through. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about that. I joined when it was spun out from Time Warner. Tim Armstrong was the CEO, the first public board for AOL uh, as a new company, as a new co. And we sold to Verizon, as you know. But it was the most difficult, troubled tech brand any brand I've ever worked on. I love turnarounds. But this one was epic. So yeah. it was a good outcome. But you were there in the early 90s? No, no, no. I joined, I joined actually right when the uh, Time uh, Warner and uh, uh, AOL merger occurred. Biggest merger in the world, oh, right? Wow. Uh, in the history of business. And so I came right at that time. Uh, I believe I joined one week exactly before 9-11, 2001. Oh, my. Uh, and, um, you know, early on when I got there, you could tell there was going, going to be an issue. Uh, you didn't know how it was going to play out, but the issue was a clash of cultures. And, you know, the AOL culture at that time was fast moving. It's like we're digital, we're forward looking, and they had a lot of disdain for the time side of it. And uh, if you went on uh, on the Time Warner side of it, uh, and I knew a lot of people there um, from both my music days and, and, and just kind of being around in, in New York for a long period of time, they had a lot of disdain for the AOL people. They're like these guys, you know, they think they know. But they're going to hit a wall soon, and we're just waiting for them to hit the wall. In fact, we might even encourage them to put a little gasoline and oil down on the floor and see if we can help them hit this wall. And um, The wall so, did come. Yeah, the wall did come. Um, but I think the, the, the most difficult part, even for those who wanted to build bridges, just not having the same language, you know, the same uh, um, kind of approach to change, um, the same perception of what was causing some of the, the, the changes that we're seeing in the marketplace made it difficult to even have a conversation and to build a bridge. So so do you think that's why it failed as you look back on it? I mean, it's, one of, it's probably the most epic corporate merger failure. Do you think it was a culture clash or was there anything else going on? Well, I, I think at the heart of it is it's a culture cl- a clash because um, culture is probably the most difficult thing to change. Um, and, and when I say culture, uh, I mean it at the highest level. So 
do you see the same world? Do you see the world in the same way? Is there some intersubjectivity among the people who live there? Um, do you have the same values? Do you um, do you guys have the language and the symbols and the evangelists that actually make this whole thing work? They're completely different um, uh, in Time Warner versus uh, AOL. And so I think that was the heart of it. Um, there are other things, but for sure, yeah. um, including yeah, you know, kind of the changing landscape yeah. from from dial-up to, to broadband. But um, uh, that, that to me is the heart of the, the inability of those two companies to come together in a way that they could actually meet the challenges that were facing them. So if you were coaching, if you could put yourself back in time and you were coaching the CEO of AOL and the CEO of Time Warner, what would you have told them to maybe have a different outcome? Um, I, I would have said that um, your impulse is going to, to be to put leaders in place that you're familiar with, each of you. And you might even make compromises and say like, you know what, Time Warner, you get one, and AOL, you get two. Um, that's gonna be your impulse. But that will lead to disaster. The right thing to do is to think about who are the catalysts for change? Who are the people who actually embrace it? Who are the ones who are curious about learning and, and, and about kind of meeting what is uncharted territory in a way that um, they're enthusiastic about it? But most important is this, who actually has the skill set and the track record for collaboration, for working with others who may not be exactly like them? Um, once you get that together, then you have a chance of, of succeeding. Uh, and uh, I don't think they did any of those things, by the way. Would you say that's a gift of yours to bring people together like that? Bring I, I different think, kinds of people together and put teams together that can really do amazing things. I, I, th I think it is. I mean, I never thought about it in that way. Um, but you know, as I, I grew up in San Francisco. We grew up in a working class neighborhood that was extraordinarily uh, diverse. Um, but throughout my life, and we moved around quite a bit, I had to navigate kind of new circumstances, you know, new territories. Why did you schools. move around? Was it your parents? Uh, you know, my, my dad was just getting transferred or got promoted. And so first we moved around the Bay Area. Um, we stayed in San Francisco. Then we moved down to Southern California, to Los Angeles. And then in my senior year, we moved back uh, to the Bay Area, but further in the East Bay, uh, in, in a place called Clayton, which is near kind of Walnut Creek on the East Bay of San Francisco. Um, but you learn quickly when you're when you're moving into these new environments. You know how do you adapt? How do you how do you read the the signals of how things get done? How people how do you integrate into it but maintain your own identity? Yeah. Um, and in learning that. Um, and again, I haven't thought about this in, in quite some time. You, you can apply that in, in business. And I think that's one of the things that's made me you know, somewhat successful. Sure. We're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So you're at BlackRock now. We're yeah. Fast forward into today. And you're the CMO of BlackRock. It's not exactly a Tide or a Pampers or a Pepsi. It's not a household name. Yeah. But it is a pretty interesting organization. So if you were to talk to my kids about what BlackRock is, how would you talk about BlackRock? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I didn't really know BlackRock myself. I mean, I'd heard of it um, uh, before I came, before I got the call to go there. Um, I knew which was how many years ago? Uh, it's about two and a half years ago, and so so I, I knew about I knew about BlackRock. It was on my four hundred one k statement. Um, but that's about all I knew, and um, and it was a mystery to me. And I think it was intentional on the part of BlackRock, like other asset management companies, to remain anonymous to people that were not their clients. I think that was. Kind of the the, so the you say asset management. What so does that so mean? to company companies that manage other people's money. So um, there's asset management in they manage clients' money, and then there's investment management. They actually raise money uh, uh, for people, and um, and and the business was extraordinarily successful um, in, in, in approaching it that way, right? So BlackRock went from 30 years ago zero dollars of assets under management to six trillion dollars of assets under management today. So. Something went right there, and that's great. Um, but we're it's now the largest in the world, correct? It's largest in the world, um, and um, you know we continue to grow. Um, you know, thankfully. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, but a few things have changed. You know, one increasingly we're getting people, whether it's academics or whether it's um, policymakers or even investors, are saying, "But who are you, and why do you exist?" And so that has led us to to um, clarify who we are. So if I were explaining it, I try to explain it uh, more about why we exist first and, and before I, I talk about what we do. But our, what we believe is that more people should have the opportunity to experience well-being by having a better relationship with their money. 
So getting people to understand how they earn their money, how they spend it and save it, and how they invest it and how they give it away will actually increase or decrease their overall sense of well-being. And so what we do is try to develop solutions, products, platforms that actually help people to achieve that sense of well-being. We're the only firm that goes across the full spectrum. We have no bias. You know, you want something that is simple, that's tracking an index or that follows a market um, like the S&P 500, we got that for you. You want something that's complex, uh, you want technology, we have the largest technology platform through, through Aladdin. We have no bias except the client. And, and I think that's our, our unique advantage. We serve clients in order to enhance their sense of well-being. Got it. And you said if you were to explain this to my kids, you would start with kind of why you're here, why you exist, what yeah. your purpose is, if yeah. you will. Your CEO, like a year and a half ago, he writes an annual letter every year, right, yeah. Larry Fink? Uh, and he wrote a letter that kind of rocked the world, right? He basically said, your criteria for investing is changing, right? Maybe I'm getting this yeah. wrong. No, you're right. But And the criteria will include, is a company here to good do good things for the world and their customers? Do they have a sense of purpose on their own? And that just rippled throughout the world. Yeah. So I'd like to get, if you could give us a little bit of why he did that, what has changed for you mm-hmm. after that letter? What has changed for your company and what could others learn from that? Because this was the CEO of the largest asset management company in the world saying purpose is really important and we're going to invest behind that. Mm-hmm. That's huge. It, it, it is huge. Look, he's not the first person to say purpose matters. Um, uh, and my whole career has been driven by a sense of purpose. But he's, he's the first asset manager, investment manager, someone who's sitting at the center of the financial services industry to say that if you're going to survive long term, if you're going to thrive long term as a company, you better think about a sense of purpose that goes beyond profits. And, and the reason I think he got there is what Larry travels the world constantly. Um, and, and what I love about Larry is he's, he's, a, he's a lifelong learner. So he's continuously talking to a range of people. Um, he's talking to leaders of governments. Uh, he's talking to policymakers. He's talking to academics. He's talking to employees. Uh, he's, 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 he's talking to the man on the street. Larry is talking to everybody. And then he processes that information to come up with new insights about where he thinks things are, are heading. Love that about him. He's I another think, great University of California alum, right? Oh, yeah, he sure is. Yeah, UCLA. UCLA. Yeah, yeah, he's UCLA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, and so so I think in going through that process, what he started to hear was a theme, and that theme was that the discontent that we're seeing around the world is not isolated. So if you see populism in various parts of the world, whether whether that's you know Germany or France or five star in Italy or here in the United States or Bolsonaro in Brazil or in the Philippines, you're seeing it pop up around the world. What he concluded was that that's not a liberal or conservative issue. That's an issue of people feeling like they're left out. And he started to see that momentum grow. And that momentum is growing to such an extent that it's starting to raise the question about a corporation's social license to operate. And so as a foundational issue, um, he saw that there's a threat to the corporation's right to operate in the world. Um, the second thing I think he saw was this, is that when you started to, to uh, listen to various stakeholders and and whether that's used to be just shareholders but now you listen to employees you listen to community leaders um, uh, you listen to even suppliers they're all saying we will work on a transactional basis no problem but the companies that we love the ones that we really want to partner with the 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 companies that we want to join as employees and have a career with we actually want to feel like we're contributing to something bigger than ourselves and and if you can show us that you really believe that and that it's not just words, we'll actually go the extra mile with you. When things go wrong, we'll stand beside you. Um, when you need the extra help, we'll be there for you. And I think that's the shift. And, and I think the thing that brought it home for, and this, this brings it home for most executives, if, if, even if you don't believe most of that, what you will see for sure is when you try to hire the best talent and the best talent is making a decision among various companies, um, it almost always comes down to this. Can I contribute to something in a way that it is bigger than myself? Which is, does this company have a sense of purpose that's clearly articulated, and are they actually living it? And I think that makes a difference. And Larry, and Larry's actually um, through his various conversations arrived at that that conclusion. What is what's changed since then in your company and in your life <laughs> the last year and a half since that letter came out? Yeah, you know the funny thing about about that letter is that. Um, 
as soon as he sent it out, and, and he knew this too, you knew that two things would happen. The first thing would be a group of celebrate celebratory letters and emails and people saying like, this is, we've been waiting for this and we've been waiting for someone within the investment community to actually articulate this. And we're happy that the largest asset manager in the world um, did it. But you also knew that it will be a bullseye on, on our back in two ways. One would be, so if you believe that companies can thrive long-term only if they have a sense of purpose beyond profits, how are you helping us identify purpose? How are you helping us embed it? How are you helping us measure it and prove that in some way that purpose and profits are correlated? How are you going to help us get through uh, this long-term uh, uh, platform that you want us to develop in a world that is inherently short-term? So that's kind of one piece that we knew it would come. And the second- So are be, you, have you figured that out yet? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all, it's all done. We haven't figured it out, but, but uh, and you, you were part of, of some of these conversations we had when we were down in Miami, mm -hmm. we had a salon dinner. We haven't figured it out, but what we, we've done is this. We feel like we can become the convener in chief around some of these issues. So we're supporting research. We're supporting papers um, that are being written about, about those issues. Um, we're convening people across multiple disciplines to have a conversation about what is purpose? How do you identify it? How do you embed it? How do you measure it? And we're trying to share that. It's open source in that, in that sense. We, we don't want to own the IP. We just want to elevate the conversation. We don't have all the answers, but we think we can be a part of, of offering some of the solutions. Sure. Who are some of the leaders, Frank, out there who you think are acting on purpose, leading on purpose, seeing results from it, measuring yeah. it, embedding it? Yeah. I mean, well, one, I think CVS, the, the pharmacy store, uh, is acting on purpose and and living their purpose and and for me it was a, a remarkable thing to see you know I think it was a couple of years ago now um, CVS made the declaration that we are essentially a healthcare company we care about the health of of people in our communities and we want to enhance that and someone called them out and said I don't understand how you can be a healthcare company when you sell cigarettes and CVS made the decision to pull cigarettes off their shelf. I believe it was about a $2 billion per year revenue hit. Um, it, it, that's a big decision, knowing that that's going to have short-term implications. Um, and in, in the world of quarterly earnings, that's a massive decision they made. But they believe that their purpose was more important than any kind of short-term gain, and they live by that. And so so I think that, to me, is, is, was a great uh, great sign. But even if I go back in time, I think Indra Nui uh, at PepsiCo, when I was at PepsiCo, her mantra was performance with purpose. And a large part of what she wanted to do was to retool the entire portfolio of products that we had so that it actually served people better. And and that sense of purpose, I think, was And she was took a lot of heat for that when she made that announcement, what, 12 years ago? Oh, and yeah. The company's much stronger because she was resolute and persistent. Yeah, it was a tough period, that strategy. Because I remember at that time, I think Mutar Kent, um, had the opposite perspective, which is um, he, he was holding up Coke at the time. He was CEO of Coke at the time, and he, I think he was holding up a can of, of Coke and saying, "You know, we believe in, the, in in this product right here. This product is actually good for people um, in the broadest sense." Mm -hmm. And so, and and the short term implications of that is that that stock price actually accelerated for Coke, and Pepsi yeah, struggled a bit. Um, and, and it's because if you looked at it in the short term, everyone knew that the transition would take time to move people from. You know, full calorie soda to better for you products, and so um, I, I think she was ahead of her time. Uh, but fortunately, she she set it up in that way where now I think they're reaping the benefits of it. So let's go back to Pepsi and some other things here. I think you've had of all CMOS in the world, maybe the most interesting career path. Right? You started at Berkeley, yeah. which you told me. Then you went to Harvard Law. Yeah. Not not many CMOS go to Harvard Law. True. Then you came out and you worked at Def Jam, Urban Box Office, which I think you helped found, mm -hmm. AOL, PepsiCo, BuzzFeed, BlackRock, and you were CMO of Pepsi North America, BuzzFeed, yeah. and now BlackRock. Yeah. So, gosh, you know, <laughs> what insights do you have about that career well, path? And what, what one assignment or period in there really stands out? in yeah. your development as a leader and as a person. Yeah, so I gotta I got take you back to law school in order because there's okay. a pivotal moment in law school that actually um, set me down this path. And it's not like I mapped this out that, you know, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go into entertainment, looks pretty good technology, now. then package goods, and then, then, then finance. I got it all mapped out, it wasn't that. But, but, it, but it was pivotal, it was a, I was a summer associate 
at a firm called Irella Manella in Los Angeles. And it was one of those kind of boondoggles at the time where, you know, you, you know, great dinners. Good and, apartment, and, and, good and, salary. The whole thing, Los you know, Angeles, the, the, yeah. the whole works. I don't know if they do that anymore. Um, and so um, I was working on a case um, of Tetris. And Tetris was created by a Russian scientist at the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, but the problem is the Copyright Control Office of the Soviet Union issued a license to both Nintendo and Atari on, on an exclusive basis. So all hell broke loose, right? And so... Um, so someone came in and said, Frank, do you have a passport? I said, I got a passport. They said, okay, two days, you're going to the Soviet Union. And you're going to travel over with Hal Kruth, who's a 20-year partner. And you guys are going to basically do depositions of a bunch of people. Um, you know, the, the scientists so who created the game. this time? Uh, I was probably 21, 22, something like that. And so, so we go over, we go over to the Soviet Union, and and we start to um, host these, uh, hold these depositions, and they're going fine. You know, of course, you know, we're not getting much information, but you know, you have to go through the motions. Um, but the strange part of it was this: is that um, at the time, there was it was the time of perestroika, so it was still you still had tanks on the street, but you had empty restaurants, and um, and so there's only one place we could eat. You know, they served basically roasted chicken and vodka, and that was it, and beer, roasted chicken, vodka, and beer. And we went there every single night. And so we started to get to know each other. And he asked me a question. And this is what changed my, the course of my, my whole career. He basically said, so Frank, what do you want to do? I said, I, you know, I think I want to teach ultimately. Um, I, I love constitutional law. I'm working with Larry Tribe. You know, this is, I, I love it. It's you know, the intellectual rigor, all that stuff. And so he listened uh, uh, the whole time. And he said, look, OK, this is the only thing I'm going to tell you. And then we're going to go back to drinking vodka and eating this roasted chicken. Um, what you, whatever you do, you're going to work long hours, you're gonna, you're gonna increasingly spend your time, your, your, your personality is such that you're gonna actually be obsessed with whatever you do. The downside is this, if you don't connect your personal passion with that, what will happen over time is your personal passions will start to go to the wayside. And I promise you, trying to find a sense of fulfillment in your job will become increasingly difficult. So you at the beginning of your career, why not solve it right now? Figure out what do you love, what energizes you, and then connect that to your job. And there's plenty to do in law that crosses a full range of activity. So just figure it out and then connect those two things together. It was a much more difficult process than just going home one night and, and thinking about it. But I landed on this idea of, of what I love, the thing that energizes me is whatever actually helps other people expand their potential. You know, you start, started looking at the stories and things that actually made me feel a sense of fulfillment. And it was that I looked at music that way. I looked at technology that way. I looked at the work at BuzzFeed that way. I look at the work at BlackRock that way. And so that's been the common theme for me. Uh, and if I don't see that connection, I just won't take the job. I won't join it. Um, but I've been able to find that connection point. And, um, and that, that was you know, a long time ago when, I, when, uh, when I, I was fortunate to have that conversation early in my career. Yeah. It's still wise advice, right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure you're giving it these days to the people that you're recruiting. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny because um, it, um, as we started to go into the purpose work, um, part of activating purpose with employees, uh, it feels full circle to me in a way because the way I believe you should activate purpose with employees is to help them find what they're passionate about and what their strengths are. It's got to be a little bit of both, right? You can't be like, I'm going to, to audition for American Idol and you can't hold a pitch. <laughs> You're going to have a strength that actually matches the passion, the passion a bit uh, and then connecting that to a sense of purpose on their job. I think that's the first step in activating purpose, and it has to be with your employees. Um, so we're in the process of doing that now. So in some ways, it's full circle. It's just that now I think we have much better tools to allow people to actually explore you know, their strengths and their passions and then find and connect that to a sense of purpose. You sound like a great boss, Frank. And so what, what do you, if I were to talk to your, your employees at BlackRock and I went back to BuzzFeed and Pepsi, what would they say about you? What would they say that Frank's especially good at or Frank had this impact on me? I mean, I, I would hope that uh, what they would say is that Frank um, spent his time and energy trying to make me better, clearing the path, you know, finding out uh, what what they want and what they need uh, to advance their careers, um, you know, helping them overcome challenges. Um, I try to focus on this idea of serving them in a way that actually um, allows them to, to reach their full potential. And sometimes I've been successful at it, sometimes uh, less successful. Um, but that's my intention. Mm -hmm. Super. So I want you to talk a little bit about the three CMO roles, yeah. Pepsi and BuzzFeed and BlackRock, really different companies, right? 
So I'd like you to t- tell me, you know, what's the biggest thing you've learned from those experiences about the CMO role? I mean, what was, was is the work different at those three companies? Yeah. Did you focus on different things? I mean, kind of what was the work at yeah. those three companies and what was your biggest learning or takeaway from yeah. those three experiences? Well, they're so, they're so, they're so different, um, but there's, there's a common theme, um, but they're different because they're different in time and different in space. Sure. Uh, the common theme, though, is that all those roles dealt with change, but from a different perspective. You know, PepsiCo was dealing with change uh, from the perspective of a large corporation that um, kind of moved fairly deliberately, um, but all the growth was happening with startups who were moving in, in a nimble and agile fashion. And so, so for me, at PepsiCo, uh, the role of, the, of PepsiCo was number one: keep these big brands going. You know, trying to make sure that they don't de- uh, decelerate uh, and and gain some momentum with big brands like Mountain Dew. You know, we we were able to accelerate that that brand in, in a way that um, they hadn't seen. In, so, in what did years. you do as a CMO to do that? That's yeah. hard. Yeah. So, what did you focus on? What was the work? The big shift um, for me at, at PepsiCo was to shift from this whole mindset, uh, mindshare um, um, approach to marketing, where you're trying to get a piece of uh, um, kind of the, the brand and in, in, uh, kind of taking a piece of someone's uh, you know um, thought processes, mm-hmm. to actually becoming a culture share brand. I spent much more time and energy thinking about what's happening in culture, and then how is that going to shape behavior. And so when I thought about Mountain Dew, for example, which is a, a strange brand for me to be on, to be honest, to be honest with you, because Mountain Dew is, is Mountain Dew is basically a euphemism for moonshine. Yeah. Right? It grew up in the hills of Tennessee. It was, it was founded in the hills of Tennessee. Uh, if you looked at the footprint of Mountain Dew and its distribution, it's primarily the Midwest, but really heavy in the in the, in the South. Um, and and um, but they had avid drinkers. They loved Mountain Dew. They loved the brand. And we started to see. You know, people like Christmas trees with Mountain Dew, tattoos with Mountain Dew. Um, strange things were happening with Mountain Dew. And so what, what we decided was that, well, if you have that kind of advocacy built in and that kind of loyalty built in, you know, what can you do to actually motivate them? And what was happening at that time in culture was, can, could you use your fan base to help you create? And so we started to apply those, that kind of thinking uh, to the Mountain Dew brand. We created things like Democracy, where you know, they created the next Mountain Dew drink, which became- You, know, mm-hmm. you were early on that. We're, yeah. we're early on that. But it was really just looking at culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at culture to see um, you know, um, how can uh, Mountain Dew become more of a creator brand. We did the same thing with, with Pepsi. Uh, we saw the shift where people not only wanted to be invited in to participate in the outcomes of, of whatever activities um, the brand was doing, but they actually wanted to be creators alongside you. And so we're giving opportunities for that. And so you know, we try to leverage culture much more than we had previously. So from those experiences, what would be your advice to people about becoming a lifestyle brand? You know, that's kind of the ultimate in a brand. And, and we know it when we see it. Yeah. You know, Apple's a lifestyle brand to some extent. BMW is, Peloton. Yeah. yeah. So you were part of trying to make Pepsi's brands into lifestyle brands, shift into culture. What's your advice on that? And how do you pick talent for that? Yeah. How do you match the talent to the brand? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the best thing you can do is become a student of culture. And, and, and unfortunately, being a student of culture doesn't mean just reading the book. You know, it's not just about picking up the magazine. It's actually getting out in the world and interacting with people, but people who probably are not like you, you know, and, and that's the hard part, I think, for um, a lot of companies and a lot of brands and a lot of brand marketers is that no matter where you come from, you have to figure out how do I get to people who may have a different experience and different perspective and understand, you know, what are the symbols that motivate them? You know, what are the rituals that they're following? You know, what are the stories that have motivated them, motivated them over time? That's the only way that you can tap into and understand in culture. And then you have to look at where do you think it's all moving? Uh, and so become a student of culture, I think, is the best way to build a lifestyle brand today. Mm-hmm. Super. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. 
Get started today at webflow.com. So let's shift to BuzzFeed, right? Yeah. So why did you make that move? And how, what's the CMO at BuzzFeed do? Yeah. Honestly, I love Pepsi. Uh, And um, you were there for 12 12 years. Yeah, yeah, 12 years. And um, honestly, at one point, I thought I would just stay there for the rest of my, my career. I started to feel... You know, in my restless. gut, in my, it wasn't really restless as much as it, as it was the sense that while while we were doing great things around digital um, at the margins, it wasn't core to the operating model. And I knew Jonah Peretti, who was the founder, co-founder of Huffington Post, founder of BuzzFeed um, for quite some time. I had him on our digital advisory board. And um, I just loved what he was doing. I loved the concept of, of, of BuzzFeed. And, uh, and I felt like it was on the leading edge of sure. what was happening in, in the digital space. And so I made, it, I made a decision that if I wanted to remain on the leading edge in terms of my own skill, my own skill set, that I needed to actually jump into the belly of the beast. And so that's largely why I did it. Uh, in addition to hearing that you know, there's a good chance that they would either sell or go public. You know? sure. So the money was not a bad thing either. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And so I, I decided, why not? What do I have to lose? Because the, the the downside is that it doesn't work out, but I'll learn a lot. Um, but the did risk of staying Did you feel prepared for it? I did. When you I got did, there? Yeah. I, I definitely felt prepared for it, but you know, the, it, there was a lot of uncertainty because um, uh, you know, anyone who's ever worked in a startup, uh, you understand that you never really know what's going to happen next. And, and you know, people call it pivots as, as if it's a, you know, a planned process. It really is kind of dealing with the uncertainty of being in, uh, in, a, in a startup position and responding to the changing circumstances in, in front of you, that's a hard thing, you know? And, um, and so I was prepared to the extent that I knew I could stand up a marketing team. I knew I could stand up a creative team. And to the extent that their revenue model depended on bringing in traditional marketers, I knew how to translate what they were doing to traditional marketers. So I felt, I felt really good about, about that piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to learn. And I wanted to learn. So, so what is this? How do you, how do they create? What's the new way publishers will create content? How do you put a data scientist beside a creator and make it actually work? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how do you run algorithms in a way that that the algorithm doesn't take over all kind of human creativity? I, I just wanted to learn, um, but I wanted to learn it as a practical matter, and, uh, and and that's partly what what I did when I was there. Yeah. Then you went to BlackRock. It yeah. was a compelling situation. Why did you make that jump? Um, and what what do you what does a CMO of BlackRock do yeah. day in and day out? What's a good day at BlackRock? What's a bad day as a CMO? Oh, oh a good day and a bad day is probably all wrapped in one. Uh, um, so so it was at BuzzFeed, and I get this call um, from a headhunter, and, uh, and they said, "Hey, look, you know, we represent BlackRock. Uh, we've been looking around for a CMO. Your name's come up several times." Um, we think we'd like to talk to you about the role. And my response was, I don't really have any disdain for financial services, but two things. One, I know nothing about financial services, nothing. And then two, I'm not even sure I'm interested in financial services because uh, my understanding of it at least is that marketing historically has been more about sales enablement in financial services. And I'm more of a lifestyle marketer, cultural brander. Uh, And so at best, I would have compliance knocking on my door probably every single day. It just doesn't seem like a great fit, so I gave them some other names. Um, there was a guy who, who was at BlackRock that I've, I've known for a long time, uh, who, who was the uh, director of presidential personnel under Obama. So he called me and he said, hey, Frank, I heard you you blew these guys off. you know." And I was like, no, I didn't blow them off. I gave them some other names. It just doesn't seem like a nice, a right, the right fit for me. Um, and so he said, look, I, I think you're probably underestimating what we want. And you should at least come in and talk to Larry Fink, who's you know the founder, co-founder, and CEO of BlackRock. Talk to him because I'm telling you, um, what they are describing sounds a lot like you. Um, they're talking about leveraging technology more, modernizing the marketing practice, but more important, they're talking about how do we build a brand that actually has broader resonance beyond our clients and something that we don't do very well, but they're hungry to get it done. So, so I went in and talked to him, and um, and he started to talk about that that vision. And I got excited about it, but I've been around long enough to know that um, if the CEO gets excited about it, it doesn't mean that the company is ready for it. And so then I talked to other people to see whether his direct reports and the layer below them actually believe the same thing. And I kept hearing the same theme, which was this industry will change in a fundamental way. We have a choice. We can either try to manage a slow decline or we can lead the change. We've made the decision to lead the change. 
And for me, that's like, that's my sweet spot. I, I love dealing with industries that are changing, companies that want to lead the change. And, um, and so, so for me, it was kind of what I've always done, which is how do you build a brand that actually has deep resonance with, with people? Um, how do you establish a, a sense of purpose and a statement of purpose and purpose actions with, within the company? Uh, and then how do you modernize the marketing practice so that we shift from kind of long form white papers to more short form visual content that's easily digestible, whether that's for a professional or for kind of the mainstream public? Yeah. That's a good to-do list for any CMO, Frank. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. You just you know, reeled yeah. off there. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Larry. I mean, the CMO CEO relationship is so important. Yeah. And when they're on the same page and have the same vision, it works well. And when they don't, it's problematic for the whole organization. So, how do you cultivate? What's your advice? He's a busy guy, right? Yeah. He's not around much. He's got a lot of you know a lot of demands on his time. Yeah. How do you do it? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that the most important thing I've learned over the years as a CMO is is to not think about marketing as this isolated effort to do you know, big sexy things. Uh, to think about it in terms of driving growth for the firm, profitable growth for the firm. So what I do is I try to talk to, with Larry about the things that I believe can help drive profitable growth for the firm. And some of it is just giving him some baseline knowledge about kind of some of the marketing terms that we're that, that we're we're all dealing with. Sure. Um, and some of it is is foundational. If we, we, we will spend, you know, an hour or two just talking about what is a brand and can you actually develop a brand in today's world, you know, where you know consumers are price conscious, they're they're flipping through um, brands and product names very quickly. Can you develop in that in that world without spending an inordinate amount of money? So from that to um, how do we leverage data in a way uh, that actually helps us target more more effectively? The good thing about Larry in particular is that he's hungry to learn and he likes knowledge, and but he likes also the debate, um, but always with the intention of coming out with it with a deeper understanding. So what I do is I try to go in and talk about growth. And um, and you have rituals with him. Do you see him once a week, once a month? You've got well, opportunist, opportunistic, opportunistically. Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, so we have a we have a one on one every single week, uh, and then um, um, it's pop in if he's in the office, pop in anytime, or I'll join him on a trip. You know, so um, and those are probably some of the best times to actually have the longer conversations with him. If you're on the plane with Larry, you know, going long distance. Um, Besides playing cards, we you know, we, we, uh, you know we'll have, we'll, both important, right? Yeah, exactly. We'll have, we'll have long conversations about um, you know some of the meteor uh, topics, but for me, framing it in terms of how do we drive profitable growth by understanding uh, the needs of of consumers or end investors and working back from there, that's I focus almost purely on that, and then it's just what techniques are we applying to do that? Yeah, fantastic. So let me talk a little bit about how you. I mean. You're an experienced CMO. How do you stay fresh? I mean, in your whole life, how do you keep your creativity up, your energy up, your ideas up, yeah. your passion for what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, do you have rituals? Do you read in the morning? Do you get up early? Do you exercise in the morning? Yeah. You, you know, just tell yeah. us a little bit about well, your so, so the how you stay <laughs> fresh, vital, creative. Yeah, what so, are your rituals? So the 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 exercise ritual is, is theoretical at this point, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that a reality one day. Uh, um, I, I always plan to get up and work out. I haven't done it in a while. Um, the thing I do is to, to try to stay fresh, though, is one I read a lot, um, but I rarely read a marketing book. I'm always reading something else um, besides marketing. I, I'm reading, you know, Morton Hansen's book Great at Work, or I'm reading um, Prosperity by Colin Mayer, or I'm reading. Um, like Jeffrey West, who's a physicist, sure. and uh, he wrote a book called Scale. Yeah, and uh, I'm working uh, on that too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a big one. That's a big one, uh, and it's hard to get through, but but fascinating great. in terms yeah. of um, you know how cities scale and organisms yeah. scale. Scale and by then, Jeffrey West, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a great great book. Yeah. So I read a lot, and how scale can crush you, right? Exactly right, 100 percent right. Um, and um, and I try to read laterally, uh, so that you know what are some of the foundational topics that I think um, are shaping what we are seeing today. Um, the second thing I try to do is a lot of what Larry does, and that is I try to keep a broad network of, of people that I that I tap into. Some that I know well, some that I don't know well, but across disciplines. And so, yes, I'm talking to marketers for sure. Uh, I'm talking to other business executives, but I'm also talking to artists. 
And I'm also talking to entrepreneurs. I'm talking uh, to people who are not even in large corporations. Um, I'm talking to people who are not in who are in non-executive jobs. And I try to talk to people uh, across a full spectrum. And and that I try to do in a disciplined way. And I keep room on the calendar to do that. Um, for me, that's been the who best have you way. Who you met recently that's been inspiring or interesting for you? Well, it's, a, it's a great ritual, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the thing that that pops up um, um, for me is is uh, when we were down in Miami. Um, we had Frank and I were together at a conference in Miami a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was great. You know, we had a CEO of a bank there. We had um, chief investment officers, um, you know, next to us. Uh, I think we had a couple of other marketers. But it was Cobra, who's a street artist that actually, for me, was the most profound part of that that meeting uh, because Cobra, he talked about why he did what he did. Uh, and he's famous now as, as a street artist, but he was never motivated purely by the money. He's motivated by this idea of this public act can actually change the way people perceive themselves, perceive the world. This public act actually can spur action. And, um, and that was probably the best and purest form of purpose that I had heard. And so, so that for me was was um, profound, and that was a street artist. Yeah. yeah, he has like 19 murals in New York City, right? Which I didn't know until yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah he, he told us. He's I haven't remarkable. seen him yet. Yeah, he's remarkable. So, so Frank, what do you what do you love about your work now, and what drives you crazy? I mean, what's the one thing you just love that keeps you just you know coming to work with your energy, and what drives you nuts? Yeah, I'll start with, with drive me nuts. <laughs> the thing that drives me nuts is that. Um, this is still an industry that has the perception of marketing as a facilitator for sales. And so, so in this role, I'm constantly battling that. It's not even battling the perception as, as, much, as much as the muscle memory that's built around that. And so you'll have teams of people that are used to getting certain things from marketing. You know, can you get, get a brochure or host an event or can you produce a video? that's related to the sales transaction. And we have teams that will do that and that's perfectly fine. Um, but the most frustrating thing is to get them to shift that mindset to, into demand creation, uh, shift the mindset into reaching scale in ways that marketing alone can actually achieve some of it. And so I'd say that's the most frustrating thing. It's frustrating only because it's a, it's a time issue uh, and, and trying to unlearn things is, is, is as difficult as trying to teach, probably more difficult actually than trying to teach new things. And so, so that's the most frustrating thing. How do you think we change that? Because I see so many industries, entire industries where marketing is really sales support. Yeah. And I, I see it in a lot of automotive companies. Yeah. I see it in a lot of industrial companies. I see it in some pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And, and, the, and the great companies treat marketing as a growth driver, as a demand creator, as a consumer insight machine, as, a, as the curiosity function. Right. But their role is to prepare the company for the future, bring new customers into the firm, and figure out how to keep their customers always delighted. Yeah. And, and that's a really inspiring thing to do every day. So how do we change that? Yeah. I mean, the only, the only way I've seen it work in a consistent way is when the marketer is able to own the insights and the analytics that are fed into the firm. Because if you, if you own the insights and you start to paint a picture and tell the story of how change is going to happen, how your client is changing, or how the end consumer is, is, is changing, um, it awakens people, uh, number one. Number two, I think it's, it's, it's easier if you focus on an area where there's high growth but the downside is low. You know, so if you are Toyota, for example, you'd say, I'm not going to mess with the Camry, but I think this green thing is real. Uh, I think that, um, you know, these, these uh, electric cars might actually grow. Let's create the Prius. You have a greater opportunity to do that in the area because the downside risk is much lower. So kind of find the growth areas, apply the insights to those growth areas. I think you have much greater flexibility in leading that, that effort and then demonstrate scale over time. Um, that's at least how I've approached it when, when I've seen change happen fairly quickly. So that's what drives you crazy. What, what do you love about it? Uh, what I love is that um, I have an opportunity to do what I think is foundational. Um, I honestly did not think I would come to BlackRock and focus on purpose to the extent that I'm focusing on purpose. Did not think that. Um, if you asked me before I came into the firm, I would say that 80% of my time would be in modernizing the marketing practice 
And then I'd say the other 20% of my time would be like helping to spread that across the entire enterprise, helping people understand how to put it in, into practice. And I would not have purpose on the radar at all. Um, and um, the big surprise and the thing that is really motivating to me and the thing that I'm personally passionate about is this idea that one, every company that wants to thrive long-term needs to have a sense of purpose beyond making profits and that we can actually help to lead that conversation. I love that part of, part of the job. It's a wonderful responsibility and a wonderful legacy. Yeah. So, so maybe that's the legacy. But when you leave BlackRock someday and you pass the role on to someone else, what do you want people to say, you know, Frank Cooper did this while he was at BlackRock that lasts beyond his time? You know what? Um, for me, it's not pointing to any singular execution platform or project, actually. Um, if I, I, I'll feel like I've actually accomplished what I want to accomplish if people say that Frank helped people grow. That's it. That if I helped people grow. And for me, the only thing I think that lasts at the end of the day is um, every project that, that, that we might do could be exciting and sexy now, uh, 10 years later, 20 years later, people will forget about it. But the thing that lasts is if you actually help expand someone's potential, help them get past something, help them grow, not only do they remember it, uh, it pays it back, it, um, not only to you, but to the world at large. And so for me, I'm focused purely on that. It's like, how can I expand human potential on an individual basis, but also on, on a broad scale basis? Yeah, that's beautiful. So I want to shift gears a little bit here, Frank, and get your point of view on some interesting industry issues, right? So um, have you ever made a Super Bowl ad? Yes. What, 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 do you, what ads have you made? Oh, at Pepsi, at Pepsi. Yeah, so, so I did um, back in, when I first got, came on board at Pepsi, I think it was back in 2003, um, I did a, an ad with Spike Lee. Um, mm -hmm. we, we had Monique in it. Yep. Uh, and um, we had, um, I think it was Biz Marquis song in, in, in there, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a track in yep. it. Did, fa did fairly well. I've done um, Super Bowl commercials with um, uh, uh, Dave Chappelle. Uh, I've done Super Bowl commercials with Beyonce. Um, I think we did we did some with uh, Blake Shelton and um, uh, some other country artists. Uh, I've done several Super Bowl commercials. So what's your favorite that you've done and that what's your favorite of all time? You know, the favorite that I've done is, is, is really the first one that I did, and that, that's the one with Spike Lee. Um, I love that one because, one, it was the first time that a, a, an African-American ad agency um, produced, entirely produced, uh, and, and conceived of an ad that came on the Super Bowl. So what I like agency it, was that? Uh, that was Spike Lee's agency. Spike Lee's, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so, so that one has a special place in my heart of that one. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm not a I'm not a I'm not addicted to the the idea of Super Bowl Super Bowl ads. In fact, um, you know, I would say in 2012 to 2015, in those last three years at PepsiCo, um, I didn't spend a lot of energy thinking about the Super Bowl ad at all. Um, I thought about everything around it, though. Right. Yeah, the halftime show for sure. Uh, I thought about um, the things leading up to it. I thought about the aftermath of it. I thought about the content that people might see adjacent to it. Mm -hmm. um, I thought about almost everything but the Super Bowl ad itself, even though I think that's a great form because it's hard to have that kind of simultaneous viewing, you know, 115 sure. million people, yeah. and it's hard to have that kind of focused attention, which you know that, that live event can give you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great form, but I was looking at more of how you sustain that kind of connection and sustain the conversation. So I started to look around the Super Bowl as opposed to within it. Mm -hmm. But even with that said, do you have a favorite Super Bowl ad of all time or a favorite ad of all time? You know, I'm old school on that one. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, um, and, and it's unbelievable that I was that this is still the one for me. Um, but I guess two. Um, one is definitely 1984. I mean, that for me is just, it was such a powerful moment. And talk about someone who understood culture and, yeah. and kind of the right moment in time and, uh, and how to project that. You know, it wasn't just that it was 1984, the year, and it wasn't just that 1984 referred to the book. It was like at that moment in time within culture, uh, people wanted to, to see that you could actually resist what you saw as the establishment. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he represented that well. Um, then going to the opposite end, end of the spectrum, I think the Budweiser What's Up ad, <laughs> it was just, just silly, but, but it's catchy. You know, it was memorable, and it became like a meme uh, on the marketplace. Yeah, so absolutely. those two. So switching from Super Bowl advertising to 
a marketing, is there a marketing campaign or an idea that really stands out for you as just like blows your mind, so good, so powerful, so effective? I'm still, I'm actually still blown away by Nike. And, um, and I'm blown away by the fact that they've been able to make that transition from a brand that, that was a traditional big TV advertising brand you know, with a just do it, you know, tagline in it, you know, with major stars, Michael Jordan, et cetera, to where they are today, where I think they're building community, where they're, they're personalizing uh, um, uh, activities for people to actually enhance, um, you know, their, their fitness. Um, I'm more impressed, I'm really impressed with that. So I look at Nike Plus and, and all the efforts that they're doing, you know, from what, what used to be the watch, but now is the app. Mm -hmm. um, I'm super impressed with that one. But I'm also impressed that they transitioned from the slogan, just do it, to the action of just do it. And when they decided to, and I'm sure they, they, they calculated the upside and downside risk of this, but when they decided to support Kaepernick, mm -hmm. which was obviously a very conscious decision that had um, multiple ramifications, that people, some people were burning tennis shoes and things like that, um, they basically said, we're gonna take a stand um, behind the people that we think represent the values of this brand. And to me, that was big, and, and huge. Yeah, and and um, so for me, that's part of the Just Do It platform, as opposed to the, the Just Do It uh, TV campaign. The third thing I think that they've done this well. This is the 30th anniversary of Just Do It. Is, is it really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, and it's amazing that they they've been able to sustain that. But I think they sustained it because they evolved what it means and how to actually apply it. And the last thing is is that um, they've made that shift to um, being a tech led. A branding company, you know they have a building you know, full of engineers and data scientists that are helping to drive decisions, which I think is remarkable because you see the art side of it, you know, as a consumer, but behind there, there's a lot of science behind it, which I think is is really impressive. So I think the Nike campaigns um, that we've seen recently for me are the most impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. Are you a Nike guy? Do you wear Nike sneakers? Yeah, but if I worked out, it would be even more <laughs> meaningful. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> got it. So I want to wrap up with a bit of a speed round. Okay. And the first question I have for you is, what's a brand that you cannot live without? Oh, Amazon. Yeah. Why? I can't live without Amazon because, um, and it's almost unfair uh, because, um, one, um, they have made it so convenient to actually order the things that I want to order. Uh, free shipping, you know, at your fingertip. I can track the orders. Um, it's just so convenient and so easy. Uh, I find it very difficult to live without that brand. And it's so ridiculous at this point that I'm ordering things that I probably don't even need. You know, I'm like, you know what? Why don't I order an extra razor just just because? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. But Amazon, I can't live without. I haven't told my wife yet, but I actually bought yesterday unlimited music on Amazon just because they popped up on Alexa. Yeah. I wanted to listen to an album and they said, it's only three ninety seven a month or something, one month free of trial. So what the heck? That's right, so that's right. It. Easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. How about your wife? What's a brand she cannot live without? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, if, if you saw her closet, you, um, wow, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because um, she's, she loves fashion, like loves fashion. It's heavy into it. Um, but I'm confused by the number of brands that she has at this point. You know, lots so, of brands. Lots of brands. Yeah. I would say right now, probably um, Chanel and and probably on the Chanel we call it pocket bags. Mm -hmm. and, and some of that stems from the fact of, of that Gucci's had issues and Prada's had issues. you know um, And so the Gucci controversy uh, uh, and yeah, the sure. Prada controversy yep. has led her to actually back off of those brands. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly like Chanel seems to be popping up Got uh, everywhere. Got it. Frank, I wanted you to talk a minute about brands that get into trouble. Right, Facebook's having its privacy issues. Theranos had a million issues on integrity and trust. So when a brand gets into that situation, and you've probably had a few of those in your life, what do you do to restore trust? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult path back um, because I think at the core of that, those experiences is, is the fact that actions matter more than words. And um, the only way back that I've seen, it's not going to be posters on the wall in the office. It's not going to be great speeches. It won't be a great video. It won't be a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal. It is action, 
uh, and it's supporting people that actually support what you truly believe. So if you truly believe that data privacy is uh, something that's a right of people, uh, then don't just say it, get out there and support it and support the organizations that are actually trying to facilitate that. Uh, you know, if you truly believe that, um, you, know, uh, um, you know, people have, have, have the, the, the right to, to medication, don't just say it, go out there and support it. And so I think the only way back, and it's usually a long path back. It's not. It's Is not there a, a brand you've admired that has come back from a really, really deep and tough issue? Wow, um, I can't think of one really off the top of my head. It's to be hard. honest with you, it's a, it's a hard one to think. Um, like one that was in deep trouble that has recovered. You know, um, I don't know if they'll, if they'll be the same or not. We'll see. Um, but Goldman Sachs is inching its way back. And if you look at what Goldman Sachs has done, it's, it's, it's quite interesting because Goldman Sachs is, has been known for being the, the quintessential mysterious bank in a way. You know, they had never had their name on their building. You know, you know people, uh, unless you knew who, the, who they were, you didn't really know what they did and how they did it. And um, over the past couple of years, they've been trying to increase transparency. They've been putting out... Uh, you know, videos of their CEO, uh, you know, now their CEO is a DJ also, uh, mm -hmm. of showing that side of them. Uh, they've been trying to become more transparent and allow more voices in. Um, they're on the path back and you're seeing some of that trust increase. Um, and other financial firms are trying to do that. If you look at the Edelman trust barometer sure. and how that's increased uh, over the years, what's interesting about it is that Trust in financial services has actually improved a lot over the past two years, but mostly with existing clients. And so I think it's still a long ways to go with the general public actually believing and trusting that financial services firms have their best interests uh, at heart. But um, but Goldman at least is making making an attempt at it. I can't think of any other firm though that's actually dug its way out. Um, we got we have to think about some controversies that have happened over the past you know ten years or so. Yeah, I mean I think Bank of America is one of the that are Wells trying Fargo. to come back, Wells Fargo, but you know they've stumbled. Yeah, um, I think you know Target had a bunch of missteps a couple of years ago, and they certainly have roared back. Yeah, yeah. and I think you know in the same category, Walmart, you know, ten years ago was seen as a little bit of a villain. Yeah, and I think through their behavior, they've gradually rebuilt trust. So I think those are a few of them, but it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, it's it's very difficult, especially especially now because. You know, the corporations don't control the communications channels now. Right. I mean, you have right. to, the reason behavior I think is so critical now is you have to get other people to stand up for you. Yep. You know that trust is now distributed among a wider range of people, and 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 that's where they actually draw their trust. That's why people trust Airbnb and Uber, et cetera, because you know, it's not that they trust the corporation; they trust others on the platform to help police it. And so, mm -hmm. so I think that's a big shift though for major corporations. Yep. Super. And the biggest passion right now in the world for you, I know you talk a lot about BlackRock and purpose and your family. Yeah. But anything else that? No, no, no. Honestly, I'm simple in that regard. Um, it's definitely my family. Very passionate. You know, my wife, uh, my son, my my daughter, um, and um, and my extended family. Very passionate about that, but also about this idea of purpose. You know, both BlackRock's purpose you know, of helping more and more people experience financial well-being, but also helping other companies uh, find purpose and making that part of um, of kind of the standard practice of business going forward. Uh, I'm passionate about that, and um, I think there's a lot of runway ahead for that. No, absolutely, and I'm, I'm delighted you're doing it. it it's, changed, it's changed the world. I mean, yeah. everyone I talk to is talking about BlackRock's letter and how the company is changing the world, so I think it's a huge force for good now. It's great. So last question, Frank, who else would you like to listen to on the CMO podcast? You know, um, Lauren Hobart, someone who, um, that we worked, we worked together at PepsiCo. She's now um, president of Dick Sports. Uh, she was CMO for a long time there. Uh, she recently became president. Uh, but I think what she's doing, she's, she's bold, brave, uh, principled, uh, rooted in purpose, and a really, really smart marketer. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of Lauren's point of view. We'll get her in the studio. That'd be great. Frank, thank you. Thanks a lot, Jim. It was appreciate amazing. It. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. That was my conversation with Frank Cooper. I was so inspired by Frank's advice, wisdom, and insights about acting on purpose, investing in your people, and leading a company whose objective is to make this world better. It was 
so totally inspiring. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.